back, America. Less than five hours away, actually, from Donald J. Trump becoming the 45th president of the United States 76 years ago. 1941, FDR gave a speech about the crisis that looms 76 before years before that. Abraham Lincoln gave a second inaugural address, probably the greatest inaugural address ever given. And 76 years before that, George Washington gave the first inaugural address. Dr. Larry Arnn, it's probably the case that there are Americans out there whose great-grandfather heard George Washington gave that speech. We are a young country in many respects. Yeah, also the oldest, though, because... uh This succession that's happening today is the oldest, longest surviving ceremony of its kind anywhere ever. And it's a remarkable thing. Oh, yeah. Picking a real executive by the will of the people, taking an oath prescribed in the document that sets up the executive, very similar speeches by all of them over 200 years. It's really a great thing. Now, I quote you in this morning's Washington Post in a column I wrote. When I talk about the Constitution is very, very strong, and there are checks on Mr. Trump for those who are alarmed by him, I also point out that Hillsdale College President Larry Arnn likes to point out Donald Trump has never raised a word against the Constitution's design or institutions. And I know that because you set a team to find everything he'd ever said about everything with that regard. Yeah. Yeah. Bunch of students working in my uh, office, including uh, last year's salutatorian, Jack Shannon, over in London. I usually don't reveal his name, but you guys are all friendly, right? Uh, Anyway, he's a really great kid, and they all were. And I just said, uh, Trump published in January of 2016 uh, in the Reno, Nevada Gazette, a beautiful article about the rule of law and the Bureau of Land Management. And uh, I invite you to just go look for it. It's easy to find and Google it. And it's beautiful. And I went. I was stunned by it, how how good it was. I knew he'd been talking about this, but I went and got my team. I said, "Go find everything Trump has said about the rule of law and the separation of powers in the Constitution." And how far back says Jack? And I said, "How old is he?" <laughs> and uh, what we found was stuff going back to two thousand, but also back to nineteen ninety one. One instance. And we couldn't find any exceptions. And so Jack comes in my office and says, and I read it, sit with him sitting there. It's good, too. And I said, okay, where's the bad stuff? And he said, I can't find any. And I said, look again. He still hasn't, right? It, uh, and what that means is uh, what he says has been on that subject has been not just good, but particularly good. Now, we are going to spend two hours talking about some of these speeches. And these speeches matter why. When we begin with Washington and we look at Lincoln and we go on to FDR and then we look at Obama and Clinton and Reagan, why do these speeches matter? Uh, Well, the office that Trump will assume today was not designed around a person except that George Washington was very influential over it. The powers are written down and described, and of course they are the powers to execute the law. Think about all the different meanings of that term. And so how do you grant a power to execute sufficient to keep a country safe, which is no easy thing to do, never has been, and yet make it accountable to the people? Well, everything about the office is designed to achieve that, starting today with an oath that the president will take. All this ceremony arises from the command in the Constitution that the president take an oath. And for all of the officers named in the Constitution, it's said that they have to take an oath. 
the president's oath is prescribed verbatim in the Constitution. And so the way to become president is to swear to uphold the Constitution, and that means on your personal honor, you see. And and that means that, and just think what that means. It's sublime. It means this is not your office. This is our office, and you get to hold it for a while. Do you believe Donald Trump understands that? I, uh, Of course, Donald Trump is the first person elected president to his first significant public service, and so there's room for doubt, of course. And, you know, he is a kind of direct and aggressive fella. So that's why people think he might be a tyrant, I think. Um, many do, I know for sure. But what I think is he's always spoken so well about this, and he does seem to me to love his country and its freedom. I also made the argument in the Post column, the Constitution is very, very strong, and it is hedged, that office, with many checks and balances which are not insignificant and which begin to act on it almost immediately. Yesterday, he paid a compliment to Paul Ryan for working closely with him. And if Paul Ryan doesn't work closely with him, not much gets done. Yeah, yeah, and also he'll get his Trump tattoos to use you at first. Yeah, the Constitution is very strong. Also, the Constitution is damaged, and it's damaged because we legislate in a different way, and we have whole new 150 mini legislative, executive, and judicial branches all combined into the, each one of these agencies. Trump is working on that, and that, I think, if he pulls that off, is a massive act of restoration of the Constitution. We're going to be talking about inaugural addresses, past, present, and the future one, which is now about five hours away, as the Obama era dwindles into a memory like sand prints on a beach. It will be gone before you know it, and we will be part of the going. Stay tuned from the Kirby Center at Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu. Hugh Hewitt and Dr. Arn. Morning, glory, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn from the Kirby Center at Hillsdale College's Washington Lighthouse in the shadow of the Capitol. Fellow citizens of the Senate and House of Representatives among the vicissitudes incident to life, no event could have filled me with greater anxiety than that of which the notification was transmitted by your order and received on the 14th day of the present month. On the one hand, I was summoned by my country, whose voice I can never hear but with veneration and love from a retreat, which I had chosen with fondest predilection. And in my flattering hopes, with an immutable decision, as an asylum of my declining years, a, tr a retreat which was rendered every day more necessary as well as more dear to me by the addition of the habit to inclination and of frequent interruptions in my health to the gradual waste committed on it by time. On the other hand, the magnitude and difficulty of the trust in which the voice of the country called me being sufficient to waken in the wisest and most experienced of her citizens a distasteful scrutiny into his qualifications, could not but overwhelm with despondence one who, inheriting inferior endowments from nature and unpracticed in the duties of civil administration, ought to be, peculiar, ought to be peculiarly conscious of his deficiencies. In this conflict of emotion, all I dare aver is that it has been my faithful study to collect my duty in a just appreciation of every circumstance by which it might be affected. All I dare hope is that, if in executing this task, I have been too much swayed by a grateful remembrance of former instances or by the affectionate sensibility to this transcendent proof of the confidence of my fellow citizens, and have thence too little consulted my incapacity 
as well as disinclination for weighty and untried cares before me, my error will be palliated by the motives which misled me, and its consequences be judged by my country with some share of the partiality in which they originated. What is George Washington saying, Larry Arnn, at the first inaugural address in the first paragraph? Uh, Of course, this is one of the few greatest speeches ever given. It was written by James Madison, and it's given by George Washington, who, first of all, they could not have had the Constitutional Convention if he had been unable to go. We, We actually have a record that shows that. But second, they designed this office about him. How are you going to have a strong executive? Well, they have devices to check it and control it and make it strong, too. And then second, they're all looking at him sitting in front of the room when they're drafting the Constitution. So all the great inaugural addresses, almost all of them, say not Bill Clinton, uh, they all begin with a statement of humility. I'm not worthy of this. This is a great thing. Reagan's is particularly beautiful. This is an argument. You just read an extended argument about why I know I am not worthy for this. That's what he says. It goes on and on. He won't shut up about it. People in the room must be looking at each other and saying, is he going to take the job? Did he change his mind? That's it. That's it. Uh, He goes on then to talk primarily, though, it would be peculiar and proper to omit in this first official act my fervent supplications to the mighty being who rules over the universe, the great author of every public and private good. No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. His second paragraph, after I am not worthy, God is most worthy, and God has been good. It's, yeah. an, it's an argument again. Yeah, that's right. And he, it, uh, th- there are two or three of the most beautiful arguments any president ever made in this speech. And you have to, and it is true that the greatest speechwriter in presidential history is James Madison, but it's also true that James Madison himself didn't really talk like this. And the reason was James Madison was, you know, four foot ten or whatever he was. and Little Jimmy. Little short guy and very intellectual, right? Very, very great man but not at all in the same way of George Washington, who was the personification of dignity. But he wrote this for him knowing he was a good ghostwriter. Oh, he, yeah. he wrote for the man. Oh, yeah. It, Madison is the one, more than anyone else, who persuaded Washington to come to the Constitutional Convention. And there was a crisis about it a couple, three weeks before the convention. And Madison got on his horse and rode to Mount Vernon to talk to him. And Washington agreed again to go. This was because the Society of Cincinnati was meeting, correct? Well, it wasn't. And because that's, see, it's just perfect. You understand George Washington. The Society of Cincinnati still exists today and is a very noble thing. And it was a society of those who fought in the in this Revolutionary War. And they named it after a Roman citizen who retired and went home, as George Washington did. And so the whole purpose of the thing was to celebrate the founding by force of Republican institutions that would not be run by force. But it got around in the papers that this was a aristocratic deal, and Washington was embarrassed by that. And so he decided he wouldn't go to the meeting of the Society of Cincinnati. And then it occurred to him that if he went 
somewhere else, it would embarrass the society. And so he couldn't pretend that he was incapacitated or something. And so he wouldn't want to cause anybody any embarrassment. And so he wasn't going to go to the Constitutional Convention. And he had to be persuaded to go, and he did go. We have been joined in our conversation about the first inaugural address by George Washington, a warrior, by another citizen warrior, Senator Tom Cotton. I am now outnumbered two Arkansas people. Welcome, uh, Kansas. It's great to be here. I, I feel so privileged to finally have graduated from the lowbrow JV version of the Hugh Hewitt Show to the Friday Hillsdale hour of the show. It is. It is <laughs> very, very high up. It is very, very high up. Um, have you re- have you done your reading? We sent you reading. We sent you five inaugural addresses. I, I've done a little bit of my reading. Yeah. And so, what struck you about Washington's uh, inaugural address? Well, j- just the elevated tone of the address. You know, a- as the father of our country. Um, first in war, but then also uh, in peace, um, and the the appeal that he made to all factions, all elements of a what was still a very um, new country, a very young country, with a lot of potential divisions inside of it, and that spirit I think has continued forward through all the uh, inaugural addresses you sent me, but really most presidents' inaugural addresses. Yeah, it's a um, much remarked upon thing in the Post today and in news coverage that I watched last night that we are a divided country. Have we never not been a divided country? Yeah, you know, as I walk around the streets today, one of my favorite sports is to try to identify the Trumpers from the resistance. But it's also a reminder that there was a time in our history when we actually had a real resistance uh, during an inauguration in 1861. And no matter how divided people may think we are in our times, that there are times in our past when we were much more divided. Uh, and that we have an opportunity to overcome those divisions uh, and try to achieve some real great progress and things for the American people. And much more perilous. Uh, I pointed out when Dr. Arndt sat down, Washington, 76 years later, is, is Lincoln's second inaugural address. 76 years after that is uh, 1941. We're not at war, but the rest of the war is. And Wren churches are being blown up and... Guildhall bombed, and then 76 later, Donald Trump. This is not really as dramatic a period of time, Dr. Arn, as those three other events. It isn't. Uh, in principle, by the way, it is in some ways that we could talk about. But in practice, and see, in principle, there are always terrible, looming dangers. And the ones we have today are very bad, in my opinion, related to the ones in the Civil War. But it's good to celebrate that they're not... You know, there's not an army in the field attempting to overcome the government of the United States on our own soil, and we shouldn't act like there is. In, in Lincoln's first inaugural, which I did not read to get prepared, were there agents in the city attempting to well, conspire? Well, Lincoln references in his second inaugural, his inaugural four years earlier, in which there were spies and agents inside the city trying to foment disunion. It, it is really kind of hard for our, our commentators today to, to figure out what to talk about when it comes down to this. We're back on Washington, and you mentioned this earlier, Dr. Arn. There exists in the economy and course of nature an indissoluble union between virtue and happiness, between duty and advantage, between the genuine maximums of an honest and magnanimous policy and the solid rewards of public prosperity and felicity. He's making an argument about virtue. That's right. Uh, lots of foolish scholars build this web that we're just a low, crass country built on self-interest, greed, and all that. That's a big claim of the American left today, but it's an old claim in historians, which went left (laughs) two or three generations ago. But you have to read this speech, and you have to wonder, who did they pick to be the first chief executive? Who was the most important man in the founding of America? And he's qualified to say this paragraph 
and it's just gorgeous. And in fact, it's a summary of classical political philosophy. How so? One well, minute. well, uh, Aristotle's claim is the greatest human good is happiness, and happiness is an activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. You can't be happy if you're a bad person. And that's the whole culminating meaning of that book. And he you know, identifies the highest virtues, too. But this is just that. He just writes that in a paragraph. George Washington in 1789, April in those days, April of 1789. Don't go anywhere. Senator Tom Cotton will be with us this hour, Dr. R, in this hour and next hour from Hillsdale.edu. You're listening to The Hugh Hewitt Show. Inauguration Day is upon us, and I'm happy. 22 minutes after the hour, Americans, Hugh Hewitt from the Kirby Center of Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu. Joined in person by Senator Tom Cotton of the great state of Arkansas and the president of the Lantern of the North, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. Uh, gentlemen, we're talking about Lincoln's first inaugural right now. I am loath to close. We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. No passion may have strained. It must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. Larry, on that comes at the end of what Tom Cotton off air just described as a brief. Yeah, he uh, the first inaugural and the second inaugural of Lincoln are the starkest contrast, one of the longest and one of the shortest. And the second is I don't know if we're going to talk about it, but it's a it's a beautiful poem and very brief. And the first one is is a legal argument about the nature of the union coupled with an appeal that we don't have the power to end it and we love each other and we mustn't end it. Senator Cotton, when you read these things as a United States senator, and you're going to be how close to the president and the president-elect today before they take the O's and then when they give the speech, where do they put the senators behind them? Well, we'll be a lot closer than I was four years ago as a congressman <laughs> up in the nosebleed seats of the stage. I, th I think uh, four years ago the senators were to the speaker's right, the audience's left, uh, just in the seats right off the lectern. And so you're, it's a historic deal. What did you, when you read these things and prepare, what do you think? about Lincoln's argument on the eve of the Civil War? Um, well, the, the legal brief section of the first inaugural is very compelling. It makes a very strong case that the Union predates the Constitution and that the Union is indissoluble. Uh, and certainly uh, you can't have states simply seceding of their own accord. Um, but, you know, that final concluding passage, you know, is, as, as Larry said of the second inaugural, um, you know, a, kind of fine poetry um and you know you read it today at least i read it today and you think you know where did where did he have the the wit the insight the grace the brilliance to come up with what are relatively simple words but simple words put together in a beautiful fashion uh and you still hear those echoes today uh shortly after a quite astounding election in november barack obama said in the oval office uh, that this is just an intramural scrimmage. We're all on the same team together. And and that put in modern terms is an echo of what Lincoln said in that final paragraph of the first inaugural about our bonds as Americans uh, and as citizens, no matter how much our elections may rage and become vitriolic and partisan and, and full of passion. There will be four former presidents on the dais today, and the defeated rival 
This may be the first time we've done this where there's a president with a defeated rival. Obviously, George Herbert Walker Bush was defeated by Clinton and, and was there. But but you have a successful president, a defeated rival, and four living presidents. I just love the world sees that we don't shoot our former presidents. And and that is itself very, very rare. Oh, yeah. it uh, Lincoln makes the case in this speech that uh, the first time uh, a free people by popular vote changed the regime was in 1800 in the United States of America, and the principle it established, he says, is that uh, ballots replace bullets. And that's the great thing. And remember, in 1800, what happened was the party of George Washington, the party that founded the United States of America, the Federalist Party, was destroyed by popular vote. And then, of course, after that, Thomas Jefferson said, we are all... uh, uh, we are all one country. What do you say? All Democrats, all Republicans now? Uh, the second and the first inaugural, my countrymen, one and all, think calmly and well upon the whole subject. Nothing valuable can be lost by taking time. If there be an object to hurry any of you in hot haste to a step which you would not take deliberately, that object will be frustrated by taking time. But no good object can be frustrated by it. He's actually urging patience, Larry Arn, which is something maybe a lot of people in this town right now haven't got much of. He, he, uh, you asked me once, uh, did he think he could make a peace and prevent the war? Uh, I, I think he harbored that hope. I mean, there were ambassadors, he mentions it, uh, from the South waiting on him, looking for a meeting, which they never got. But So they regarded themselves as a different country, but he thought maybe he could put that to bed by time. Did he keep the, uh, very quickly, did he keep the border states in with this argument? They didn't leave. He was talking to them. He was talking to Kentucky, and they did not leave. I'll be right back with Senator Tom Cotton, Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College as we continue on Inauguration Day. Stay tuned, America. 33 minutes after the hour, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt inside the Beltway in Washington, D.C. at the Kirby Center. Hillsdale College's outpost of reason and liberty right in the shadow of the Capitol. Joined this morning by United States Senator Tom Cotton, who will be on the dais today as we swear in a new president, say goodbye to an old one. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, is in town as well. We're looking at some of the old inaugural address. The greatest of them all, Dr. Larry Arn, is the second inaugural address of Lincoln. And I don't believe anyone quarrels with that estimate. Why is it so great? Uh... It's uh, great for two reasons. One is it summarizes uh, the war as an as a penance for the injustice of slavery, which we have all been complicit in. We all pay. And then second, it uh, lays the ground for the reuniting of America, uh, having paid that price. And, of course, it does that in what I think is the greatest language any president ever wrote. And so it's just lovely. It uh, One part of it is like Macbeth. Uh, if every drop of blood drawn by the bondsman's toil through 200 years, or bondsman's unrequited toil is repaid by another drawn now by the sword, still it will be said that the ways of the Lord are righteous altogether. That's just, that. that's like the language in Shakespeare when Macbeth is about to kill his kinsman to get his throne and he imagines angels above crying out against and demons below crying out for the blood of Duncan so that's a you know cosmic justice it's like the Declaration of Independence uh, 
you can't, you know, we, we, we have paid for this, and we should have. And he, yeah, so. He, he, he adds as well, in the first inaugural, he makes no moral assault on the South. In this, he says, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any man should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces, but let us judge not that we be judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. That's a judgment, Tom Cotton. That's He actually does throw down on the South at this point, although... Elliptical and somewhat parsed. It's there. Well, in, in his indirect and, and measured way, um, but you know the judgments of the Lord in this case uh, were pretty stiff. Um, the Civil War wasn't just our worst war. Still to this day, uh, if you tally up all the casualties from every other war we've been in, uh, they barely surpass the casualties that we had in the Civil War. Um, so the costs that was paid uh, to rid us of the sin of slavery uh, were, were high indeed. Yeah, the idea that a speech would even matter. 600,000 people are dead. The war is almost over, Larry Arn. The idea that a speech would even matter is significant, that Lincoln would think his words could make a difference. Well, uh, th- th- that brings up the Gettysburg Address. History will little note nor long remember what we say here, but never forget what they did here. And that turns out not to be so. Not to be true. <laughs> is, is, that, is that what we might call a noble lie? That's exactly what that is. Um, but that's, I mean, it, history can easily forget what people did there because there's no immediate reminder. There's nothing to show them, you know, especially in an era before video and audio recording. Um, but for thousands of years, history has recorded words. And Lincoln, I think, knew that his words would be recorded to memorialize what had happened at Gettysburg and at so many other battlefields uh, and throughout the civil entire war as the second inaugural shows. Let me ask you both. The last paragraph of the second inaugural is, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right that God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all we may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. And he ends. It's very high, very mighty. What do you expect from Mr. Trump today when he becomes President Trump, Senator Cotton? Um, well... I expect it'll be in the spirit of Lincoln's inaugurals, but in the spirit of many other presidential inaugurals, appealing to the better angels of our nature. He recognizes that many people uh, are still quite opposed to his election and and his presidency. Um, I I don't think that Donald Trump, with no criticism of him, will quite achieve the lyrical beauty of Abraham Lincoln, but then I wouldn't say that 43 other presidents have achieved that either. Um, I also understand that he's going to aim for some of the brevity of Lincoln's second inaugural versus his first inaugural, which is a good thing, uh, because not many not many people have ever told me that I wish that politician had talked longer. I've never <laughs> actually been told that his speech was too, too short. Uh, what do you expect today? Uh, well, I, I think it's an important speech for Trump. It's important because it's in this long line of speeches. And, and it's amazing, by the way, even Franklin Roosevelt, whose purposes are clearly to alter the meaning of the fundamental documents of America, celebrates uh, those documents and their long continuity. And that's the strength in the republic. It, it, it even places the interest of extremely ambitious men in the continuity of the republic. Uh, But the second thing is, 
if he can speak beautifully today, and I pray that he does, that will help a lot. And, you know, he has done that. Many of his speeches, his prepared speeches during the campaign, were very good, I thought. And they weren't attended too much by his enemies. Uh, maybe this one will be, and I uh, hope it's really great. I, I, w- I would agree with uh, what Larry said about Donald Trump's speeches in the campaign. Uh, his speech on election night as well had a very elevated tone, recognizing that we have divisions and wounds that we need to bind up. I suspect it will be in the same vein today, and I hope that he achieves that same level uh, of um, of eloquence that he had in many occasions in the campaign. As Larry said, many of Donald Trump's critics uh, – like to pretend those speeches didn't happen. They prefer to focus on the provocative tweet or the off-the-cuff remark, uh, which really in the end matters very little compared to these major events. I mean, um, you know, I know people in Washington, you know, in New York obsessively follow the news every day, but most folks that I serve in Arkansas are not doing that. They don't have time to watch Twitter 24 hours a day. They're not watching the cable news every night. But there are occasions when they stop and pause to listen to what their president says, and the inaugural address may be the foremost occasion. Uh, and that's a moment for Donald Trump to break through all the clutter and to speak to speak as a leader directly to the citizens of this country without a filter of the media, without his critics, you know, sitting there carping about it. Uh, and I think he recognizes that based on some of the speeches he made at the critical moments in the campaign, like the convention speech, like the victory speech, uh, which are some other moments where you can break through the clutter. Now, Senator Cotton, you are not old enough, nor am I. I think Larry Arn is old enough to recall that when Richard Nixon assumed the office in 68, I, we're actually the same age, but uh, in 68, the country was deeply divided. There have been riots and assassinations worse than we have now, uh, preceding the inauguration of Nixon in 69. And yet, I don't think Nixon got as tough a time during his transition as Trump has received. It's been relentless, and everything has been amplified. Everything has been the worst ever. That It is unrelenting. The media like woke up from an eight-year hibernation with a toothache, and they're going all Sam Donaldson on him every day. Or am I simply ignoring what they did to Obama? Obama partisans will say they treated him poorly. I don't think so. No. Well, first of all, I think, you know, Lincoln, I don't want to be alarmist, but the only time that I know of so divisive a transition is in 1860-61. And, you know, they were threatening to kill him, right? And yep. they were leaving the Union. But this is... Nuclear weapons in political terms right off the bat. I mean, some of the things Trump has been accused of on so far bad information, they will end his presidency if they turn out to be true. And so that's before he takes office. It's amazing to me. I have not seen anything like this. And a new congressman elected from Maryland will bring an article of impeachment. Now, it will not proceed, obviously. It's the new congressman in the southern part of Maryland saying that he is violating the emoluments clause on his first day and therefore he's in, 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 in this is an argument that Lawrence Tribe did you take Tribe at Harvard uh, Tom Cotton fortunately not you didn't okay uh, Elizabeth Warren will probably give it some credit are you surprised that they won't even back off for a month Surprise, no. Disappointed, yes. Uh, although, in, in the same way that it's nice to see the Democrats, uh, after eight years, discover their inner cold warrior, uh, it's also nice to see the Democrats discover their inner constitutional originalist, uh, caring about the, the, the original meaning of things like yes. the emoluments clause. Um, you know, I, I, I wish Donald Trump's critics would just give him a chance, um, you know, for 10 weeks since the election, for 18 months. Uh, Donald Trump has been campaigning, and campaigning is mostly about words. 
um, whether it's speeches, interviews, tweets, what have you. But now he's going to be the president, uh, and his actions and the results of his actions uh, yield will be the way we can judge him. You know, in, the Ar- in the Army, we had a saying, uh, when the ramp drops, the BS stops. So if you're on an airplane, you've got a parachute strapped on, or you're in a Bradley and the, uh, you're about to uh, charge out the back of the ramp, when that, you can talk the big game all you want about how well-trained you are, what a stud you and your men are, uh, how you're going to you know, you know, ace the uh, training range, or, or how you're going to you know, uh, crush the enemy. It's all talk. You know, once, the ramp, once the ramp drops, though, you've got to perform. There's speculation that today he will add the Muslim Brotherhood to the list, of, or he will direct the State Department to add, since they maintain the list, the Muslim Brotherhood to the list of organizations known to be terrorist, and that attaches to it certain disabilities. What would you make of such a move if that comes to pass, Tom Cotton? Well, I don't want to speculate on the executive orders he may issue today. Uh, I will say that the Muslim Brotherhood has been a source for much ill all around the world, uh, and it's kind of the fountainhead uh, of movements like al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. And for too long, too many Americans uh, in uh, in Washington have not taken it seriously enough, uh, and it's time to take it seriously. Um, you know, some, some members of it are not Islamists. They don't wish us ill. Uh, but there are many who do. And Larry Arndt, do you expect him to move quickly on many fronts or to to take a week to get his bearings straight? Um, I think he's a pretty aggressive guy. <laughs> so my, by nightfall, we may see things happening? I think, I would, I, I think you know, 2 p.m. <laughs> 2 p.m.? <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. He's a, he's, the thing about him, Tom spoke, I think, very wisely about him. These great speeches that are deliberate, the best speeches that are deliberate, they they are one kind of thing. But, you know, if Donald Trump is attacked or if Donald Trump means to do something, he gets right back after it. You know, it's uh, that's the pattern. And uh, I think he's going to do a lot. And today, when we come back, we're going to turn to. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt's 1941 address, Ronald Reagan's 1981 address, and uh, and conclude by comparing President Obama and President Clinton all in uh, in short order. And then Larry and I will take your calls and talk longer as Senator Cotton has got to get off on. Are you part of the official welcoming or sending or anything like that, Senator Cotton? No, Roy Blunt shares that committee, and the rest of the members are the senior leaders of uh, both parties and both chambers. So you'll enjoy the day. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be right back with Senator Cotton, Dr. Larry on President of Hillsdale College, from the Kirby Center, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. 51 minutes after the hour, America, to you and from Hillsdale College's Kirby Center in Washington, D.C. On the day that Donald Trump has inaugurated President of the United States, the 45th President, I am joined by Dr. Larry on President of Hillsdale College and all things Hillsdale, available at hillsdale.edu, and Senator Tom Cotton, who long ago and far away attended a Hillsdale College as a young man uh, seminar. Uh, Tom Cotton, today you will be looking out from behind the president towards the West, uh, an innovation in 1981. And while I will go back in the next hour and look at the 1941 address, um, Ronald Wilson Reagan made that. The urban myth is he wanted to look at California. There are lots of reasons. But one of the things he said is he paid a note uh, that across the river, on Arlington were the row upon row of simple white markers bearing crosses or Star of David's quote. Each one of those markers is a monument to the kind of hero I spoke of earlier. Their lives ended in places called Bella Wood, the Argonne, Omaha Beach, Salerno, and halfway around the world on Guadalcanal, Tarawa, Porkchop Hill, the Chosen Reservoir, and in a hundred rice paddies and jungles in a place called Vietnam. And he went on to quote Martin Trepto, um, who gave a pledge, a World War One veteran. I think the veterans of America are with Mr. Trump. What do you think? 
Uh, I believe so as well, based on my experience, my personal experience uh, in Arkansas. And, you know, now I would add to that list from Ronald Reagan's uh, inaugural uh, scores of soldiers from Iraq and Afghanistan as well. And when uh, when Arkansans come to Washington and see me, especially if they bring uh, their kids, teenage kids, I tell them that, you know, you hear people on TV criticize Washington a lot. Um, and I'll plead guilty to that sometimes. But what we mean by that is a shorthand about the kind of things that some people in Washington do that hurt people like us in Arkansas. But the city itself, especially the federal core, is a very special place, I think. And I, I tell them that you, from where you stand here in the Capitol, you can move west about four miles down our mall and ultimately ending up at Arlington National Cemetery, which used to be Robert E. Lee's farm, and learn the entire story of America and what makes America such a special and unique place in the history uh, of the world. And... Uh, I think it's perf- It's very appropriate that we have our inaugural address now on, on the west front of the Capitol, looking down that mall, past the Washington Monument, towards the Lincoln Memorial, uh, across the Memorial Bridge, which symbolically reunited the Union, and to Arlington National Cemetery, uh, which is our final, final hallowed resting place, uh, which also used to be Robert E. Lee's farm. And it was the place that President-elect Trump and Vice President-elect Pence repaired to yesterday to honor the unknown soldier. I know you're part of the old guard that used to protect that place, and uh, and I'm glad that he went. I know it's a tradition. I also wanted to point out to you, Dr. Arn, that in Reagan's speech comes a very famous, very famous uh, line. I want to make sure uh, we are a nation that has a government, not the other way around. And he went on to say that in the present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem Government is the problem. That may be the most famous one-liner that Reagan ever got off. Yeah, and uh, in some ways unjustly, because it is very good. And notice how it's qualified. In the current present situation, government is the problem, because it's become a force unto itself, in my little opinion, and I think Reagan's. But, you know, so Senator Cotton just spoke very movingly about that tour you can take of American history. Reagan actually moved the ceremony to the West, comments on that in the speech, and then he takes us on this tour at the end of the speech. He talks about the Washington Memorial, and he talks about the Jefferson, and he talks about the Lincoln. Uh, uh, and it's, his statements about each of those men is very beautiful. And then that ties to Martin Trepto. Up above, he said, each of us needs to be a hero like these heroes, like Washington and Lincoln and Jefferson. And then he cites one. And the point of Martin Trepto's diary, killed one of the first men killed in the Expeditionary Force in the First World War, the point of his diary is, I must fight this war as if the whole result depends upon me. Reagan's first inaugural, which to my mind is one of the best, certainly one of the best modern ones, is a poem to self-government. It's just lovely, and and uh, that, con- that and and remember, the ceremony had always been held on the east side, and he moved it around for this purpose, and said so. Yeah, it, Dr. Joseph Warren is a founder that he quotes, and I thought it was unusual. Nobody knows who Dr. Joseph Warren is. You probably do. But he thought it important. Our country is in danger, but not to be despaired of. On you depended the fortunes of America. You are to decide the important questions upon which rest the happiness and the liberty of millions yet unborn. Act worthy of yourselves. And Reagan is actually challenging everyone to 
get their act together and start working on behalf of the entire country. Not a bad message if Trump uses it today. Look at the, the difference with the Obama first inaugural. Uh, Reagan says, I'm not going to fix the economy. You are. You see, it. Uh, you, you're going to work. We're going to get out of the way. And uh, we're going to make work possible by good, stable laws. But the economy depends on what everybody does. And that the whole posture of the speech is extremely thoughtful, in my opinion. Senator Cotton, I know you were called. I appreciate your coming by. Thank you so much. Enjoy your, your first inauguration as a senator. As a senator, yes. Yeah. I was here in 2013 as a congressman, and eight years ago I was sitting in Mitterlam, Afghanistan, with my troops watching the inauguration on Armed Forces Network. Quite a change. Good to have you in the country. I hope your troops are well. Thank you both. We'll be right back. Hour number three of the inaugural day edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show coming right up. 